when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Jonathan Derbyshire, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the terrorist attack on the Houses of Parliament, Labour's continuing travails, and the legacy of Martin McGuinness. I'm delighted to be joined by Robert Shrimsley, Managing Editor of FT.com, Vincent Boland, the FT's Island Correspondent, Jim Pickard, Chief Political Correspondent, and the political commentator Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining me. The usual business of Westminster was violently interrupted this week by a terrorist attack on Wednesday, in which a policeman and three members of the public were killed. The perpetrator, Khalid Massoud, was shot dead by the police. Shortly before the attack, there had been testy exchanges at Prime Minister's questions between Theresa May and the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn on the subject of schools funding. For once, Mr Corbyn caused the Prime Minister some discomfort in the chamber. But while he was keeping his end up at the dispatch box, inter-Nissan squabbling in his party continued, with the deputy leader Tom Watson describing plans by the left-wing ginger group Momentum to affiliate the Unite Union as entryism. Jim Pickard, you were in the FT's Westminster office when the attack took place. What did you see? So I was having lunch with a Conservative MP in Portcullis House, which is the office block above Westminster Tube, and we finished around half two, and I was walking back towards the FT's offices past New Palace Yard, and I just got back to the office when we heard the bang, and a few minutes later you could see on Twitter, was the first place we saw, not surprisingly, that something bad was happening, and then... A few minutes later, you could look out of the windows from where some of the political journalists are based in the Commons, and you could look down into the courtyard and you could see two prone figures on the cobbles there in in the yard. And it was pretty obvious that one of them was a policeman and one of them was the presumed assailant. And you could see the emergency services there, there more than 30 police standing there. And also, it was even striking then, I know other people have made this observation, but the fact that the emergency services were working hard to save both people, even though one of them was obviously some kind of terrorist. And then we, we for, for quite a long time, we were trying to piece together precisely what was happening because there were lots of different conflicting accounts. At one point, it looked as if there might have been two attackers, not just one. And events on Westminster Bridge, obviously out of our island, That took a little longer to work out what was going on there. Would it be fair to say that people in the um, Hazard of Parliament and in the Parliamentary of State have probably since the uh, 7-7 attacks in 2005 been expecting this sort of thing to happen? Yes, I think Dominic Grieve, who's the chairman of the Intelligence Select Committee, said it had been, in his words, a miracle that something like this hadn't happened before. Westminster is so obviously a target. We know how many plots are foiled all the time by the intelligence agencies. So clearly, statistically, something would happen sooner or later. But I think the overwhelming feeling from MPs and the thousands of people who work in the parliamentary estate was very much a sort of humility and respect for the police because they're the ones who are out there. They're the first line of defence. They're standing there unarmed by the road. And although what happened on Wednesday was very shocking for someone like me who works there, it wasn't frightening. But for those poor police who still having to go out there and do that job, I mean, I think for MPs as well, incredibly grateful for the police force. But the MPs themselves, they feel completely secure when they're in the Commons or when they're around there behind 
sort of ring of steel. But when they go back to their constituencies, which is where they are every Friday morning, they don't have any protection. And you just have to think about the attack on Stephen Timms in 2010. You think about the Lib Dem MP who was attacked by a swordsman about 15 years ago. And of course, Joe Cox. And so obviously MPs do feel insecure because... And as Theresa May said in her statement, part of our democracy is that you can provide security, you can beef up protection for our elected representatives, but they still have to go face to face with the voters and their constituents. Miranda, do you think Mrs May struck the right tone in her statement to the Commons on Thursday? She insisted, for example, that our values will prevail, the values of the rule of law and liberal democracy. I thought she was very good, actually. and She struck the right tone at least twice. The problem is, is that you then have to prove that the values prevail by getting on with business and parliament has been keen to immediately resume business the following day and the whole of london has been keen to prove that you just can carry on with normal life but i think there is an issue about the security of politicians and as jim rightly says it's more of an issue when they're away from westminster than when they're in there and also you do not want parliament to become a fortress because the whole point of democracy is representation and that depends on access for people's constituents and for people who want to lobby parliament to affect the course of legislation so you have to find some sort of compromise and you know unfortunately absolute security is not possible. Mm. I I spoke to a Tory MP yesterday who's a former army officer and I said what about this idea of the guards carrying weapons at the gates and he said you know if you're inches away from members of the public and they're coming past all the time and they're taking selfies and all the rest of it the idea that you could practically raise your weapon fast enough but also use it in this crowded area without causing loads of collateral damage it just doesn't necessarily make sense. And, of course, the investigation into the attack is ongoing. Let's turn to the ordinary business of politics that you were alluding to, Miranda. A couple of hours before the attack, the Prime Minister and the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, clashed at the dispatch box on the subject of schools funding. Now, this ought to be fertile territory for the opposition, oughtn't it? Indeed. And it's fertile territory because Theresa May's got a lot of problems on both sides of the House with education at the moment, not just the school's funding issue, but that's the most immediate one. What they've tried to do is iron out anomalies in the way that both primary schools and secondary schools receive their funding because some were receiving much more for each pupil than others. Unfortunately, if you try and iron out anomalies at a time when the public purse is tight, you end up with some slight winners and an awful lot who lose dramatically. And so there is vocal opposition to these changes now from MPs, even within the Conservative Party, whose schools are losing out on the changes. The additional problem is that because the overall schools funding package is going down over the next few years, even those schools, for example, in sparsely populated rural areas who are being advantaged by the change, overall their funding's going down as well. So you've got a lot of unhappy MPs. And so Jeremy Corbyn went in on this because he knows it's an embarrassment to the Prime Minister because they don't quite know how to get out of this fix. And in fact, the consultation on the changes has just ended and you might be about to see some sort of compromise because there are so many unhappy members of Parliament. Yeah, and it's, it's yet another reminder that the Tory government has a majority of only 17. And every time they try to put up 
taxes or they try and cut public spending, they're getting it in the air from their own back benches. And we saw with the attempt to raise national insurance on the self-employed, and they were beaten back on that one. And some benefit cuts from a year ago when George Osborne had to sort of humiliatingly do a volt fast on that. So that's very difficult. And what's interesting about the schools one, as Miranda was saying, it's a bit like business rates where it's a sort of moving around of the resources and creating both winners and losers. And there's one thing we know about politics, which is that the losers always manage to sound a lot more vocal than the winners. Always. Jim's absolutely right about that. And of course, because Philip Hammond backed down on the national insurance changes in the budget, any potential rebels on a whole host of domestic policy issues now will feel emboldened to press their point and to see ministers retreat. I mean, to be in that sort of situation with a very narrow majority this early in your premiership is a huge problem for Theresa May, I would say, because you never know what you're going to get a rebellion on next. I think we've coined a new iron law of politics, Green's law, which is when you try to fix an anomaly, it will always come back to bite you. Jim, of course, it's fair to say that Mr Corbyn is not the most nimble performer at the dispatch box, but he did pretty well in that exchange on Wednesday. And I assume Labour MPs emerged from PMQs relatively happy. Yeah, and what he managed to do there is he managed to bring up the manifesto issue. The thing about national insurance and the reason why Philip Hammond did have to do his reversal in the end was he realised it was unsustainable when it would have been a clear manifesto promise not to put up national insurance. And Jeremy Corbyn quite rightly latched onto the point that the Tory manifesto talked about the same amount of money following every pupil into a school, which they do. Miranda will know better than me whether they are technically breaching or not, but it certainly looked like a breach. And so there you had Jeremy Corbyn doing quite well compared to the previous week where on the national insurance thing which is you know the biggest budget u-turn for years and he had at least 45 minutes to prepare his questions on that one he knew that this u-turn was coming at 11 15 and he was a 12 year old child with decent advisors around him or her could have done better to be totally honest with you i came straight out of pmqs into my lunch and then i was into the terror attacks and so i will never know whether labor mps were reassured by corbyn's performance but i think their general view on him is so despondent that even glimmers of light they just see as a train coming the other way down the uh, tunnel is there a hole miranda where a uh, plausible opposition ought to be there's a great looming hole, unfortunately, which has a lot of activity within the vacuum <laughs> in terms of internal battles, but not making that much impact on politics outside the Labour Party. I think that if Labour did have decent leadership, there is some really fertile domestic policy territory at the moment. I mean, for instance, this broader subject of education, the government is expected within the next few weeks to bring out a white paper on schools, which will contain these extremely controversial proposals on extending selection, allowing new grammar schools. That, alongside a whole bunch of new money for free schools, which are controversial, whilst most parents across the country are seeing their own local schools facing these huge funding problems over the next few years. That creates a big headache for the government of the day. But without a sort of alternative government in waiting, again, you're looking at the impact of internal Tory party opposition to be able to judge whether you'll get reversal. So on this grammar schools issue, what's going to be crucial is whether there are enough Tory rebels again. And interestingly, Nicky Morgan, who was the previous education secretary, is very, very vocally opposed to grammar schools. And it's going to be interesting to watch whether enough of an intellectual argument can be put together cross-party to slow down number 10 on grammar schools, because that's where the impetus is coming from. It's not coming from Justine Greening, who doesn't seem to be wedded to the idea at all. But inside Downing Street, there are senior advisers, not least Nick Timothy, Theresa May's right-hand intellectual amanuensis, who himself went to grammar school and is passionately in favour of more selection. So that's another the battle surely to come.
Yeah, and clearly Labour opposes the grammar school's policy. Corbyn talking about it at PMQs, and then they get the riposte from Theresa May that, you know, all of you lot went to decent schools. Why are you taking the ladder away from everyone else? I think the sort of macro problem that Labour has at the moment is that it's so far behind the polls that it's in this vicious cycle whereby if the opposition party looks like they could become the government in 2020, it's a lot easier for the media to talk about them as a government in waiting and take their policies, should they have any detailed policies, Labour don't particularly at the moment, if I'm being honest, but should they have a kind of detailed programme for government, you can take them a lot more seriously. But when they're 20 points behind in the polls, and polls tend to flatter opposition parties, they're just stuck in this loop. And loads of Labour MPs in private They don't like it that way necessarily, but they prefer that to Corbyn looking good because they want to get rid of Corbyn. So they're not rushing forward to help improve matters for him and he's refusing to go. So we're just stuck there for quite a long time. Um, There's another problem, isn't there, for Mr Corbyn, because he's generally reluctant, I think it would be fair to say, to praise the achievements of the previous Labour government. But of course, on education, at least where London's schools are concerned, Miranda, Labour has a good record to crow about. It has a fantastic record to cry about, actually, because the creation of the initial academy schools, not just in London, actually, but also in Manchester and all sorts of other urban areas, which were previously a kind of opportunity black spot, Labour really made a huge difference to individual schools through this quite limited but very effective programme. But yes, you're absolutely right. And this is partly to do with also the Labour left's relationship with the unions, because the teaching unions are passionately opposed to the academies programme, for example, and that stymied the non-Blairite left being able to say much sensible on schooling. This week, interestingly, two of the major teaching unions have now merged to create a teaching super union. If they threaten strikes, that will, of course, cause more problems from the government than the opposition. But Also this week, you've had this nexus of the Labour left's relationship with the unions, who are, of course, the financial backers of the Labour Party, right to the fore with this row between the deputy Labour leader, Tom Watson, and the general secretary of the Unite Super Union, who's trying to stand for re-election. And again, it just looks like this terrible internecine warfare to any normal civilian member of the British public who might be looking for a party to challenge the government on the issues it cares about. Jim, maybe you can try and disperse some of this fog for us. So the week began badly for Labour with the deputy leader Tom Watson suggesting that Len McCluskey, the leader of the Unite Union, had secretly planned to fund Momentum, the left-wing grassroots group set up to support Mr Corbyn. And Mr McCluskey, as you reported this week in the paper, hit back accusing Mr Watson of trying to destabilise the union ahead of internal elections. So what on earth is going It's not my sort of natural position to be defending Corbyn over anything, but what Len McCluskey and Jeremy Corbyn is saying is correct, which is that Tom Watson has confected this row apparently out of nowhere, but actually just a couple of days before the ballots go out to members of the Unite Union. And lots of MPs, including Tom Watson, want a guy called Gerard Coyne to win and topple Len McCluskey, who's the kind of kingmaker of the Labour Party, pulling the purse strings and supporting Jeremy Corbyn for the last two years. This guy, Gerard Coyne, is from what you might call the right wing of the union movement. His father-in-law is a a well-known right-wing trade union general secretary from the 90s, and he would almost certainly take the union back to a more moderate inverted commas, right-wing position, and it currently is under Len McCluskey, who seems determined to prop up Jeremy Corbyn for the foreseeable future and maybe into 2020. So if you look at the details of what Tom Watson is saying, which is that there's this secret recording of John Landsman, the head of Momentum, hoping to get some funding out of Unite. Unite is saying that's not true. I reported a year ago that Momentum had asked Unite for money and 
to other unions as well, and all three unions had turned them down. I mean, it's conceivable that they might get some money from Unite in the future, and maybe Landsman will be proved correct, in which case Tom Watson's thesis is factually correct. But the idea that this is a huge, scary plot has been really overblown, and what this is really about is about coin versus McCluskey, the result of which we'll know in a few weeks. But put it this way, McCluskey had something like 1,100 nominations from branches and Gerald Coyne has had about 200. So the presumption for now is that Len will be returned. If we leave aside the internal politics of the Unite Union, though, surely Mr Watson is right to worry about momentum. Well, he's right to worry about momentum in that momentum is a different wing of the Labour Party to him and they are there to prop up Jeremy Corbyn. But momentum... I don't want to get too far into the tribes of Judea, but they have their own problems. They've apparently split into something called <laughs> momentum and grassroots momentum, one of which is far left and one of which is hard left. I, I'm starting to lose touch on where exactly that's going. So yes, there are factions fighting for the soul of the Labour Party, but I think the thing on which Tom Watson has chosen to make a big deal isn't necessarily one. It's all about raising the consciousness that Len McCluskey is the Corbyn supporter among Unite members, many of which don't really give a toss about politics and are probably not Jeremy Corbyn supporters. And what normally happens in Unite elections is you only get about one in 10 people turning out to vote. And the only hope Gerard Coyne has is if he can get out 20 or 25% of Unite members, then he has some kind of chance, which is why he's doing op-eds in the sun and trying to reach out beyond the usual. I think there's a bit more... I mean, I agree with Jim about the way it's going in the Unite election, but I think that part of what Tom Watson and the other moderate MPs are trying to do with this confected row that you've identified is to put down a warning marker, though, because the real battle that's coming down the track is whether they change the rules for electing a Labour leader again, is it not? Mm -hmm. Because if they can reduce the number of MPs who are required to nominate names for whoever succeeds Jeremy Corbyn, that will be the way that they secure the Labour Party for the left, kind of in perpetuity. And Labour influence and momentum influence and union influence could be quite significant there as well. What's quite interesting is that you're absolutely right that what the Corbynistas want is they want to ensure some kind of succession. The way to do that is you drop the threshold from needing 15% of MPs to nominate you to get on the ballot down to 5%. But they're going to come up to less resistance than you might expect because for a lot of these moderate MPs and indeed moderate union leaders, their worst nightmare is that Jeremy Corbyn just hangs on for another 10 years. And accurately, I think, they identify an awful lot of Jeremy Corbyn's support as it's a personal following. It is kind of cultish. There are loads of 21-year-old, your sons and daughters listeners, they're out there (laughs) paying 25 quid to vote for Corbyn because they think he's this kind of Gandhi figure. He's the guy with all the virtue. And if you substitute him with someone like John McDonnell, who is on the hard left, or someone like Clive Lewis, who has been a Corbynista, they don't necessarily have those kind of Gandhi-esque, apparently, personal qualities. And so it's not as easy as just transferring support en masse from Jezza to one of his acolytes. And there, we'll have a very interesting contest should that deal be arranged. And in 18 months, we have yet another contest. As Miranda said, non-Corbynite MPs, and that's the bulk of the Parliamentary Labour Party, have been sitting tight until Mr Watson's intervention, at least. It's easy to forget now because everything has been overtaken by the terrorist attack. But at the beginning of this week, there was some chatter that Theresa May, the Prime Minister, was contemplating, at least, the possibility of calling an early general election. Is Labour in any position to fight a general election, Miranda? Well, interestingly, Corbyn has said that he wouldn't block it. So if Theresa May does have a sudden rush of blood to the head about this 
election issue, which I have to say I don't think she will, because I don't think that's in her nature, and particularly after this week's attack, I think it's even more unlikely. But if she were to, Corbyn has said that he would cooperate in reversing the Fixed Term Parliaments Act and there would be an election. So that indicates that the leadership is seems to be much more confident about their ability to run a general election than they ought to be. I think most people would expect that Labour would lose a dramatic number of seats if Theresa May did decide to go to the country any time soon. And even that quite impressive on-the-ground operation that you saw retain the Stoke Central seat in the by-election a few weeks ago would not be enough to combat the national mood. I mean, the poll rating is dramatic, the lead that May has over Corbyn personally and the intention to vote measure, Conservative versus Labour as well. Jim. My take on this is that the fact that they're saying we wouldn't stand in the way of you holding an early election doesn't mean they think they'd do all right. They just know that it would be pretty humiliating to be offered an opportunity to topple the government of the day and replace them and say, can we, can we hold off for three years just where we get our act together? They're in a position where they can't say that. I think clearly the polls are bad. As I said earlier, the polls tend to overstate opposition parties. So Labour could be heading for the low 20 percentage points, which would be appalling. But I think you've got to remember that such as the way that British politics works is that they would still have lots of votes stacking up in the right places that they currently have about 230 MPs. Yes, they could go down to, let's say, 180, 150. They wouldn't see a complete wipeout. And you remember back in the 80s where, Miranda remember better than me, the SDP Liberal Alliance, is that what they call themselves? They got within spitting distance of Labour in terms of percentage of the vote, and yet they still walked away with hardly any seats relatively just because of that structural position, which would still be the case. Would Jeremy Corbyn walk? You'd kind of think so and you'd kind of hope so, but he's defied our expectations and our presumptions so many times that maybe he would just hang on in there. Well, there are certainly lots of Labour MPs saying that they need to lose badly before anything can change and before they expect Corbyn to walk away. But that's a huge sacrifice to make for your objective of getting rid of your leader. I think some Labour MPs fear or perhaps secretly hope that uh, Jeremy Corbyn is not Michael Foote, but he's George Lansbury. Jim, Miranda, thank you very much. In the week that the Palace of Westminster came under terrorist attack, Martin McGuinness, Northern Ireland's former Deputy First Minister and a veteran of the IRA's terrorist campaign against the British presence in Ireland, died. McGuinness's death came at a delicate moment in Northern Irish politics. Sinn Féin, the party he led for 20 years, came within 1,200 first preference votes of becoming the province's largest political party in the election on March 2nd. Talks to form a new devolved executive have so far proved inconclusive. Vincent Boland will turn to the fate of those talks later, but let me first ask you about McGuinness's legacy. How do you assess it? I think that it was on full display in Derry yesterday at the funeral. It was a sort of triumphant moment, really, for Sinn Féin, and I think that they milked it for every ounce they could get out of it. His legacy, I think, is very, very complex. He was clearly uh, commander of the IRA in Derry, a very early age, in the early 70s. He went on, some people say he was the chief of staff of the IRA at one point. So he was probably the most influential IRA figure at a certain point in his life. And then he made a pivot, if you like. I think it was not a Damascene conversion in any way, but I think it was a pivot from gun to politics. And I think that his legacy combines the two of those things. But I suspect he'll be remembered more for his politics and his peacemaking than for his IRA past, because it kind of dogs him a lot less than it dogs Jerry Adams, the president of Sinn Féin and one of his very close colleagues. So a complex legacy, but I think he probably will come across as the gunman who turned into a politician and a peacemaker. 
Robert, as Vincent suggests, McGuinness made that long journey from the armour light to the ballot box, as the IRA's old slogan used to have it, from violent struggle to the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement. It's probably fair to say, as Vincent implied, that we've heard more about the ballot box and the armour light in the days since McGuinness's death, haven't we? Yes, and I think it's been a difficult week listening to some of the tributes that have been paid to him, you know, seeing Bill Clinton turning up at his funeral, because although there is there's no disputing, you cannot argue that he was a major figure in Northern Ireland politics and that the role he played in maintaining the peace was absolutely pivotal. But somebody said to me earlier this week, you know, he was the man who brought the warmongers with him. And the first thought was, well, you won't have found that very difficult because he was very senior among them. He was a man with blood on his hands, a man whose organisation did the most terrible things. One of the outrages that the Derry Brigade could claim was the human bomb, where they essentially forced a man to drive a truck full of explosives into an army checkpoint, killing himself because they took his family hostage and told him they'd die if he didn't. These were terrible things at a time when, although Northern Ireland was not democratic enough. There were democratic alternatives. There were civil rights movements. There was the SDLP. He chose violence. Now, the fact that he later moved away from it, as Vincent says, politically rather than emotionally, means that he is remembered for that. And every life that was saved as a result is worth counting for him. But we should not forget what he was. And I think some of the people who can comparing him to Mandela uh, need a lesson in South African history and Northern Irish history and comparatives. All that is true, but only McGuinness, together with his partner Jerry Adams, could have delivered the ceasefire in 1994 and eventually the Good Friday Agreement. That's absolutely true. That it needed the men of violence to stop being violent. My quarrel is not with those who recognise the second stage of his career. It's with those who understate the first stage. And I think there's no question if you talk to people in government, they think it is going to be much harder now without McGuinness. McGuinness could deliver in a way that others really couldn't. There's no getting past that. I simply feel that when one weighs both sides of his life in the balance, we need not to understate the first half. Vincent, we'll come to the vacuum that McGuinness's death leaves in Northern Irish politics in a moment. But Robert, I just want to ask you one more question. You reported on the 1998 Good Friday Agreement as a political correspondent. What made McGuinness an effective negotiator? He was a very clever, strategically sophisticated man with a very clear sense of where he could go and where he couldn't go and where the other side could be pushed. As a human being, he was much more personable, much more charming than Gerry Adams, actually. He was someone who, as we saw later on, was, was much better at forging relationships across the communities than others in Sinn Féin. So he was somebody who when he saw a strategic goal, could turn it was sophisticated and subtle enough to turn his personality to it. Vincent, those strategic gifts that Robert was just talking about would have come in useful in the current talks over the formation of a new devolved executive, wouldn't they? They certainly would. He was a vastly experienced negotiator. He was Sinn Féin's chief negotiator from the very inception of the peace process and the talks that led to the Good Friday Agreement and all the subsequent agreements that there have been within Northern Ireland between Ireland North and South and between Ireland and Britain. And I think that tactical and strategic thinking will be missed very much so. And his replacement as Sinn Féin's leader in Northern Ireland, Michelle O'Neill, is very inexperienced. She appears to have the full backing of the party. She is an unknown quantity and she's quite an inexperienced operator in an arena where experience counts for a lot. And actually, with McGuinness's death, there's actually very little experience in the room. Arlene Foster from the Democratic Unionist Party is not a particularly experienced negotiator. She's a very tough woman, but she's not a particularly experienced negotiator in that sense. And I think that's really lacking. So I think what you'll see is Jerry Adams becoming more influential in the talks, and he can be very, very inflexible. And he lacks the 
tactical awareness and the subtle eye for an opportunity that Martin McGuinness had and that is now very much absent in the rooms at Stormont. So as you suggest, there's a sort of generational shift going on in Northern Irish politics at the moment. But of course, Sinn Féin emerged from the election with an enhanced mandate. As I said in my introduction, it came within 1,200 first preference votes of becoming the province's largest political party. So this ought to be a moment of opportunity for McGuinness's old party. Well, it ought to be, and perhaps it will be. But I think you have to question what kind of opportunity is on offer. The DUP is as inflexible as ever, and there's an element of triumphalism about Sinn Féin that, again, was on full display in Derry yesterday that probably is not going to add to the atmosphere. There were a couple of very interesting moments at the McGuinness funeral yesterday that I think may have a bearing on the last hours of the talks because the deadline is Monday for forming a new executive. One was when Arlene Foster arrived at the church in Derry. She was greeted by a spontaneous and rather prolonged round of applause from what was a primarily nationalist and Roman Catholic audience. And after the ceremony, herself and Michelle O'Neill reached across a crowd of people to shake hands with each other. And both of them were significant and perhaps symbolic. I wouldn't read too much into them, but I think that there is goodwill there if they have the experience and the tactical and strategic cleverness to take advantage of them. Robert, in normal circumstances, such a delicate moment in Northern Irish politics would be at the top of a UK Prime Minister's agenda, but these aren't normal circumstances, aren't they? And uh, the government is focused almost to the exclusion of everything else on Brexit. That's true, though, of course, there is a significant Brexit component to what's going on in Northern Ireland. The, The relationships between the Republic and the North, the circumstances of the border, the trade relationships are fundamental. Northern Ireland voted against Brexit and And it's a major issue, especially for the nationalist community. So how Mrs May resolves that is going to be one of the important pieces of the jigsaw as she goes into the Brexit negotiations and triggers Article 50 early next week. So although it may not seem top of her agenda today, she needs not to forget about it. Vincent, Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the Scottish National Party and the Scottish First Minister, is exploiting Mrs May's apparent enthusiasm for the hardest of hard Brexits to put the question of Scottish independence back on the agenda. Will Sinn Féin operate in the same way? And is the question of Irish unity back on the agenda? Yes, to the latter, but in a very particular way that I'll address in a second. I think that Sinn Féin and the DUP between them are so engrossed in their own little local difficulties that to a certain extent they have taken their eyes off the Brexit ball. The DUP was in favour of Brexit and Sinn Féin was obviously against. So that's another item on the list of things that separate the two parties and is probably now the major one. And I think that Sinn Féin is looking to the Dublin government to make the all-Ireland Brexit case with Theresa May, and Enda Kenny is doing that, and he has had some success there. But on the United Ireland question, certainly it has crept back onto the political agenda in the Republic. There are some straws in the wind that suggest that there's some serious thinking going on about the way in which Brexit may change the perceptions of United Ireland, and perhaps brought the day when it happens closer, or at least change the circumstances that will bring that day closer. And I think the most interesting one is that Fianna Fáil, the main opposition party in the Republic, is currently working on a white paper on steps towards the United Ireland that it wouldn't have dreamt of doing if Brexit was not happening. Mm. And there are other things happening as well. And and Kenny has insisted that there be a clause in the United Kingdom's exit treaty with the EU that would facilitate the North's accession to the EU in a seamless way, in the way that East Germany was brought in, for example, with the reunification of Germany. So clearly, it's something that people are thinking about, but I think it's way too early to say that the day of Irish reunification has been brought forward by even a minute. Mm. Robert, do you have any sense of how 
the question of the nature of the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic after Brexit weighs in the government's calculations as it prepares to trigger Article 50 and then embark on the long and no doubt infernally complex process of negotiating its exit from the EU? Oh, I think it absolutely does weigh on their calculations. How high up, among other things, that's harder to say, but it certainly does weigh. And I think it's one of the reasons why they're looking to Ireland to play a helpful and constructive role in their talks and one of the reasons why they feel that Dublin will be an important ally in this. One complexity, I think, however, is the Scottish referendum, which we assume will come sooner or later, which is that while I think a British government might be prepared to elide the rules on hard borders and soft borders for the province of Northern Ireland across the water, it won't be prepared to elide them in the event of a Scottish departure from the UK and an attempt to put themselves in the single market, then I think England would have to insist on some kind of hard border for its own economic sake. So they have to be mindful of the fact that whatever they do for Northern Ireland and Ireland, where I think there is a goodwill, could come back to bite them later on in any conversation about Scotland. Vincent, two things to pick up in what Robert's just said. The first is the question of whether Ireland is willing to um, play the helpful ally in all this. Well, it is. It's kind of torn between not wanting Brexit to happen and being one of the 27 that will be negotiating the exit agreement with the UK. Obviously, the whole Irish-British trading relationship, economic relationship, historical relationship, even personal relations um, are very, very close between Irish people and British people. And the Irish government has certain red lines that it is adamant that it wants to see in the treaty. One is no hard border. So I think that the Irish government is doing what it can and is making its case very effectively with the 26 counterparts and making comforting noises back. So there is, I think, some sympathy for the Irish position among its European peers. And I think there's a deal of sympathy for the Irish position in London. But matching the two of them is really the challenge. And I struggle to assess how much influence the government of a small peripheral European country will actually have in that sense when it comes to finalising the agreement. And it's going to be quite difficult for Ireland to be friends with both. But that's what it wants to be. The second question, do you think the UK government thus far has given sufficient reassurance to Northern Ireland that it takes the question of the border and the hardness or otherwise of it after Brexit sufficiently seriously? I think the British government's position has been very, I won't say cavalier, but a bit spoilerplate, which is we don't want to see a return to the borders of the past. And in her visit to Dublin at the end of January, Theresa May said that she wanted the border to be as frictionless and seamless as possible. Now, a border that's as frictionless and seamless as possible is not a border that has no friction in it. So I think that the British position appears to be that there's going to have to be some change in the border, but she has really had no direct face-to-face contact with the leaders in the North on this question. And in any case, there seems to be no agreement among the leaders in the North about that position. So they're talking at each other rather than to each other. And I think that the North bargaining position is exceedingly weak and the election outcome, we'll have to see how it influences that. But certainly up to now, I think that there has been very little understanding between the two of them. That's for sure. Robert, the Irish border is not the only aspect of Brexit on which the government has appeared, as Vincent put it, cavalier or at least somewhat underprepared, is it? Well, no, we simply don't know that much about the UK negotiating position or strategies, which encourages us to think it's overprepared, let's put it that way. David Davis was caught a few days back saying there was no plan B if we do have no agreement. You do get the sense that people in Downing Street are more optimistic about this than it is easy to comprehend why. So they think it will be all right. And I think there is a sense that we don't know why they think that and why they're so confident. It's very clear that with goodwill on both sides, a reasonable deal can be done. There are reasons for optimism. 
But it's also very clear that that goodwill could evaporate very quickly. So it's going to be very interesting to see how things progress once we formally trigger next week. There's a couple of weeks before the EU ministers get together and then things will really kick off. But both sides are at the moment making as scary noises as possible publicly. We'll just have to see. Vincent, one last question. As I said in my introduction, the talks to form a new devolved executive have proved inconclusive thus far. Do you see a resolution anytime soon? The deadline is 4pm on Monday. I think they're going to really have to stretch things to, to uh, achieve an agreement over the weekend. I think that there is a degree of goodwill there. You know, there are a couple of huge stumbling blocks, including whether Sinn Féin will accept Arlene Foster as the DUP's nominee for First Minister, because the DUP still has the right to appoint a first minister because it is by one seat the largest party. But the time is really ticking away and they have made very little progress so far. So it's going to require an absolutely superhuman effort over the next 72 hours to actually get to the point where they can come out and say we have an agreement. Vincent, thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to all my guests for joining me. We'll be back next week for another episode of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. 